Hi friends, Anne here. Just a quick note that both Drea and I had some funkiness with our audio, especially at the beginning of this episode, and not in the cool way that we like with wine. If this bothers you, I don't know, have another glass of wine or listen to this episode while walking along a busy street or something. Okay, here we go. I did not anticipate how challenging it would be to drink wine in a closet. Welcome to Two Girls and a Grape, where we attempt to learn about wine one bottle at a time. I'm Drea, a bad mom who drags her to weagle to winery after winery and appeases him with potatoes. I'm Anne, and I am currently trying to record this podcast in my closet. Interesting choice. Interesting choice. Bold move. Um... I'm really committed to sound quality, you guys. I'm trying to get better with every episode. Narrator interruption. It was not better. It's our fifth episode. We sincerely hope that you're all really enjoying listening to Two Girls in a Grape just as much as we're enjoying making it. And the best way for you to show your support is to subscribe and to give us a rating, preferably a five-star rating. Thank you very much. But we'd also love your feedback. So, Anne, I know last time we were talking about, you know, the kind of feedback we would love to hear from our listeners. Yeah, I mean, it could really be anything. Tell us your personal cheers and jeers. Let us know what you'd like us to do more of. You know, it, would you like another Mad Lib? Do you have a suggestion for a pairing that we could try. Let us know what you're interested in. And if we're not too drunk, we'll do it. You can get in touch with us uh, with Drea on Instagram at two girls and a great pod. But yeah, we'd love to hear from you what's working, what isn't and what you'd like to see us drinking too. We're always uh, down to clown and try new things. So yeah. So you've had an exciting week, Drea. Do you want to kick off our cheers and jeers? Sure. So I did have an exciting week. Um, For those of you who are following us on Instagram, you probably saw my tasting takeover. I was up in the Santa Maria Valley, Los Olivos, uh, Santa Inez, that area, and hit up some amazing wineries. It was my first little family vacation. My husband and I, we took our dog. We took my parents. We got a beautiful Airbnb on a citrus farm. There were peacocks everywhere. I scared the shit out of my Chewigle. Um, another reason why I'm a really bad dog mom. But it was great. So cheers and especially cheers to Los Olivos and the rad tasting rooms that I got to visit when I was up there. And a special shout out to Brandon from Story of Soil uh, for the amazing tasting he was super knowledgeable. He was super chill. He hooked it up and he let my dog chill on the outdoor sofa. So Brandon, you're rad. Thank you so much. But the flip side to that was, you know, the great American road trip is back. And I don't know if people have been seeing like all this craziness about possible gas shortages and the fact that rental cars are like $2,000 for a week. I mean, it's gnarly driving from San Diego up the coast back to San Diego. And then I sort of just also got back from Palm Springs. So yeah, full balls to the walls post second vaccine. But um, my jeers goes straight up to pre-pandemic traffic, which is making a vengeful return in California. Well, I definitely loved following that along. Uh, it was like living vicariously through through my phone and into your life. My my drunk life. <laughs> no, it was pretty good. I was pretty tame. I did about two tastings a day, which you know we'll we'll get into this a little bit later. But that's a pretty good, like that's a solid day, especially for not having been out formally tasting in a while. So while I was off doing research, and I won't even tell you how many bottles I came up with. Uh, what were you doing this week? Tell me about your cheers and jeers. 
Um, still living the sort of like pandemic life. So even though we're vaccinated, we haven't done anything um, too wild or crazy. So it's been pretty normal around here. But I did want to cheers Amelia and Emily Nagoski again. I cheered the cheered them on a previous podcast. And I'm just sort of having a moment with these two rad ladies. They've written some great books on burnout. And one of them has a book out about um, sexual desire as well. They also have a podcast called The Feminist Survival Project. 2020. And it's all about some of the concepts they talk about in their book, Burnout, and ways to take care of ourselves. They started it pre-pandemic. And then, of course, 2020 was even more of a dumpster fire than any of us expected. Uh, So it's just got a lot of episodes on how to take care of yourself, how to engage with the world in a responsible, collaborative way. I was listening to an episode this week on a wellness strategy called Amplification, or they call it Pausing for Pleasure. And the whole idea is that you can take a minute to really slow down and enjoy whatever is happening around you. And it suddenly clicked for me that that's what we're doing when we're tasting wine is we're slowing down and really enjoying the full experience. And I had never thought of it that way. And it was really enlightening for me. So I wanted to shout them out for giving me the idea and also connect it back to what we're doing here. I think that's so important. And I I know we talked about this before I left on my trip and I just kept thinking about it while I was up there tasting because you're absolutely right. Tasting is one of those activities where you really have to have all your senses present in that moment to really engage with and understand and appreciate that glass of wine in front of you. And I, and I know that like we talk a lot of shit on this podcast, but in all seriousness, that's one of the reasons why I'm so attracted to wine and wine tasting as, you know, this intellectually engaging creative activity, because you have to be so present in that moment. Yeah. And I think one of the things for me was just like, even the ritual you've introduced to me of how to taste of sort of look at the wine in the glass, take in the, take in the color, smell it, take in the, the um, aromas that are coming before you even get to the tasting. I think all of it really has helped me to slow down and enjoy the experience more. And I think one of the other things that struck me for wine, and, you know, obviously this isn't true, true for everyone or possible for everyone, but for us, I think it's one of those things where we drink wine purely for pleasure. You know, there's no, like, there's no health benefits. There's nothing like <laughs> we don't have to do it. It's all just about enjoyment. And there, are so few times, I think, in our lives when we slow down and just really enjoy something for the sake of enjoying it. So cheers to them for introducing that idea to me and uh, cheers to you for introducing wine tasting as a way that I can pause for pleasure. I'm always happy to be an enabler. And my Jeers is also uh, drink-related, though not really wine-related. I broke the lid on my favorite cup. So I have this plastic tumbler cup with like a plastic lid and a plastic straw that I was actually given by a dear woman um, I know. And I have just been using it the entire pandemic. It has been like my go-to have it in my hands all the time, have it at my desk all the time. And, um, you know, I'm a little bit of a clumsy person, so it's seen some damage. And this week I dropped the lid and a little piece of the plastic lid shattered off. And then I had to go through the process of like, well, am I going to, am I going to try to replace this or am I going to try to fix this? Because I'm definitely not going to live without this, this cup. So, um, It's really hard to get food safe glue, you guys, but you can do it. If you really want to, you can do it. And I have. You all have no idea how obsessed with this cup Anne is. So we started talking a little bit about uh, your adventures this week, and they sort of lead into our shenanigans. So uh, what's what's what what is our activity this week? This activity was really inspired by me being back out in the wild. Honestly, I forgot what tasting in the wild was was like. It can be a bit much, but I was just thinking that, you know, we could use my shock and awe and trauma to come up with a few suggestions, just a few, you know, loose guidelines for how 
not to be a jackass when you visit a winery or a tasting room. No one ever wants to be that person. You don't want to be the one like puking into the bush on the sideline. And I, you know, I think more than that though. So one, you don't want to be the drunken fool, right? Never good, always bad. Two, though, I think a lot of people still are very intimidated about the act of going tasting. I was just talking to another friend about this. You want to learn, but part of learning is admitting what you don't know. And I think that we're so conditioned to never do that. I think that here in the United States, there's a real fake it till you make it attitude, but that's not how you're going to learn, especially when you're tasting. So, you know, if you want a pleasant experience, if you want to gain some confidence, if you want to get out there and start developing your tasting palate, we thought we would offer just, you know, a few, few don'ts to guide you on your journey. Do what you want, but don't do these things. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. Be you, but be the best version of you. Also, I love that these are just general don'ts of things that have always irked me and now new things coming out of uh, COVID central where it's like, you know what? I actually don't need to go back to dealing with some of this nonsense. So um, yeah, we've got some good, we've got some good ones here. Great. So I'll kick us off. My first don't. Don't plan your own personal death march. And by this, I mean, be fucking reasonable about the amount that you can taste. I have a friend who works for Kermit Lynch, who's a distributor. And uh, every year they would go on a trip to Italy, France, Austria, and do all these tastings to sample things that were, you know, that they were going to import. And she literally called this trip the death march because you were up at sunrise, you were tasting by 9 a.m. And you're just going and going and going and going and going. That is a highly specific, <laughs> highly trained skill set. Don't do this when you're on vacation. Be reasonable. I really recommend no more than three stops for tasting in a day. And ideally you want to do two if you can space it out that much. You know, one, you don't want to be sloppy drunk when you're tasting. That's going to serve no one, believe it or not, least of all you. And then two, at a certain point, your palate's going to be shot. So between the acid, the residual sugars, the alcohol content, there does come a point, even if you're spitting, that, that you really can't taste anymore. Be reasonable. What I do recommend doing, though, is you know make an appointment for a tasting. My go-to is I'll do one a day. And then wherever I'm at, I'll ask who's pouring, where do you like to go? After a long day here, whose wine are you drinking? in this area. The people who are pouring tend to be incredibly knowledgeable. And so trust their, trust their judgment, trust their recommendations. It's one of the ways I have found some of the best wineries um, that continue to be my favorites. I feel like that's great vacation advice in general, as we're all coming out of the pandemic, like be a reasonable person. Don't, <laughs> don't suddenly try to make up for the last year in, you know, a single week. I am going to tie these pieces of advice to one of my favorite shows, Parks and Recreation, because I feel yes, like they have such some, a cheater. <laughs> they have some great suggestions and uh, my level of wine knowledge is right about at a Parks and Rec level. So my first tip is don't act like you know things when you don't. And I'm currently breaking this rule by making this rule uh, because <laughs> I'm acting like I know about wine tasting when I don't. But in the episode, April Ludgate compares wine to all of these different kinds of garbage, uh, like your mom's butt, oh, de Siegel, like all kinds of crazy things. Um, and I don't remember if she got caught in the episode. I don't think so because it's TV. But you will get caught. So don't act like you know things when you don't. Just like Drea said, this is an opportunity to learn and to enjoy things. And people like to teach. People like to share their expertise. So just be pleasant and ask questions. I think that's a great tip. Yeah. I mean, like I said, the people who are pouring are knowledgeable and they want to talk to someone who's reasonable. I feel like my next tip goes along with your first tip, which is don't make assumptions. Think you don't like Chardonnay? think Pinot Noir is the only game in town? You're wrong. You're well, you're probably wrong. No, you're wrong. 
Listen, learn, try new things. Wine tasting is all about the surprise of what's in your glass. And so try weird stuff, try crazy stuff, try varietals that you think you aren't going to like, try a Chardonnay that's unoaked. That's the best way to expose yourself to new flavor profiles. And the more you drink, the more you taste, the better you're going to get at it. What was your most surprising taste this weekend or this past week? So I'm not a huge white wine person, as we all know, right? We did my like gateway white bottle, but I tend to go for more skin contact oriented whites, things that have a little bit more structure, a little bit more texture to them. Los Olivos, though, that region has really been doing a lot of Austrian inspired whites or Austrian style whites. So a lot of places make a Gruner Veltliner now. And the one I had at Story of Soil was fantastic. And that a Gruner is never my go-to when I'm out and I'm drinking a white wine, but I may have to like rethink that orientation. I was really surprised with like that delicate light touch. I also had a Pinot that was super delicate and whimsical and just incredibly classic in terms of a French style Pinot. And normally that's not my jam, but there was just such a purity to it that I found myself really enjoying it. So yeah, don't make assumptions. Be open. Both of those sound really intriguing. Oh, we're going to drink some Story of Soil at some point on this podcast because I am obsessed. So my next tip, and I am curious, Drea, if you'll disagree with this, but my next don't is don't spit it out. I don't care if that's the bougie thing to do. That's wasteful and I don't want to see it. April Ludgate in the episode gargled her wine and I just think we don't need that. We don't need that here. Okay. I agree that you should not spit just for the sake of spitting. I do think you should spit in one of two cases. If you don't really like it, don't drink it. Um, Not every wine is everyone's jam. It's okay if you don't like something and you shouldn't have to suffer through it. Life's too short to drink wine you're not going to enjoy. The other reason to spit is you really don't want to get shithoused when you're out wine tasting. Like that's not cute on anybody. And if you're like, you know, I've probably had enough you probably have had enough. So that's a good opportunity to be like, I can just, I can spit. It's fine. Yeah. Those are the two occasions on which I would spit. I'm holding out on my don't spit it out. So you can decide if you come down on team Drea or team Anne here and tell us, tell us in Instagram. I feel like I'm going to lose that one. Okay. um, So this is probably my caddiest don't on this list. Don't wear a flower crown. And I'm looking at you, bachelorette parties. I'm looking at you, ladies who lunch. I'm looking at you, you know, in the peasant dresses. And I know this sounds catty and rude, but be fucking chill. You are there to taste. You were not there to have bottomless mimosas. You were not there to Instagram the shit out of your day. Like, be chill. You know, earlier when we were talking about Anne's cheers and... This idea of being present, you know, live in that moment of the tasting. And if you're too worried about what you look like or how hammered you want to get while you're tasting, you're not going to be present in the tasting. So um, yeah, be chill. And I'm sorry, I am a caddy bitch who had a full docket of outfits to go wine tasting in Los Olivos. So I should also probably just shut the fuck up. There were no flower crowns in your outfits, were there? No, absolutely not. I don't even think there were flowers in my outfits. Does does flower print not go with with a leopard? It does. I, we all know that I'm a print mixer, and I know that that scares you. It does, but the, you know, I was a little more subdued. I was a little more subdued this time around. Well, that kind of goes with my. Well, it kind of either goes with or is in direct opposition to my next tip, which is don't be so serious. Don't be so serious. So in the Parks and Recreation episode, Craig, who now I can't think of the actor's name, but Craig takes things way too seriously. He is over the top, over dramatic, over enthusiastic. (laughs) I'm an uptight bitch and he stresses me out. Wineries are 
beautiful places. Take a breath, look around, relax, enjoy yourself. It's this this overarching theme of be chill, be in the moment. Uh, which brings me to my next recommendation, which is don't be looking for a date while you're there. Don't try and get after that hotness pouring you wine. This goes for the ladies and the gentlemen. Thank you very much. They're just working. It's literally their job to be nice to you because that's how they sell wine. They don't need you creeping all up on them, especially coming out of the pandemic and all of the discussions about service industry folks and restaurant industry folks who, you know, have been hit incredibly hard. Please, please, please show these people the respect that they deserve. You know, they are professionals. They are there to impart their knowledge. This is not like a street brothel situation for you to get your jollies on. So be cool. Now, if we have two consenting adults who happen to fall in love on a winery because some hotness was pouring you wine and, oh, I want to hear about it. Like, don't get me wrong. I want all that tea. Yeah. Again, a piece of advice that I feel like stretches beyond the winery and just into regular life. <laughs> Fair. Be <Yep>. chill. <laughs> Don't hit on your servers. All right. Where are we at next on your list? My fourth rule is if there are snacks available, don't skip the snacks. Such a great rule. That's Such it. a That's great rule. Tip. I'm going to one up that. If there are not snacks available, go find some snacks. Yeah. Pack your own. Pack your snacks. You're going to want them. Also, never wine taste on an empty stomach. That is setting yourself up for a world of hurt. What are your uh, yeah. favorite, what are some of your favorite, like if you're out tasting and you see this on a menu, you're like, oh yes, we're getting that. Oh, I always want a charcuterie board. Like always. I always want cheese. I always want charcuterie. I always want olives. I always want nuts. I like salty, crunchy things, but depending on what I'm tasting, I'm also super down with a really nice potato chip. Ooh. Yeah, there's like a whole class of wine I refer to as chip wine. And it's just like, man, this tastes good with just some like salty potato chips. <laughs> All right. What's your next tip? Okay. So my last tip, and this really encompasses, you know, I think everything I've been saying at least is don't waste an opportunity. Tasting is such a great way to learn. And for me, it's always, always, always on my list of activities when I travel. You know, I'm probably a little bit more hardcore with this than most. Like I have booked vacations specifically to taste. And so for me, it's a huge learning opportunity where I'm learning not just about the wine, but about the region, the landscape, the history, the people, the value systems that dictate the farming practices. It's just such a great experience that I never want to take for granted. And I highly encourage all of you not to take it for granted either. It's it's such a privilege to be able to, to do those things. And I think it, again, goes back to sort of that idea of like, be where you are and be able Absolutely. to get deep. Absolutely. And I feel like your last tip um, really just sums it up for everyone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I definitely feel like it's relevant and we can all take this forward. My final tip is don't crawl over a fence and fall asleep in a vineyard like Ben Wyatt in Parks and Rec. I just feel like that is that is taking the chillness too far. Don't be so chill that you cross private property lines and collapse in exhaustion. Just don't. Don't be that chill. There is a limit to the, your chillness. <laughs> Maybe this is also just a personal message to like people like me or people like your husband who definitely do have a couple glasses of wine and then are like, oh, this is a very sunny and warm afternoon and I would like to take a nap now. This meadow looks quite refreshing. <laughs> Yep. This pile of dirt under a grapevine. I have literally stood next to both of them being like, why are you in this bush right now? <laughs> All right. So those are our top 10 don'ts for keeping it chill while you're visiting a winery or a tasting room. If you have your own don'ts or if you have been victimized by some of these, uh, let us know. We'd love to hear from you and continue to share out some of these, you know, loose guidelines for how to have a rad time. 
And, you know, even if you don't have any plans to go to a winery anytime soon, I think these are some tips that will take us forward into post-pandemic life in a really great way. Today, we are drinking the Beachy Pet Mex Pet Nat 2019. And the reasons that Drea picked this wine for us was that she loves a Mexican wine. And this is a great example of, you know, I think a region not a lot of people know about outside of maybe Southern California or deep and passionate wine lovers. And I love a pet nat. Love a pet nat. Don't know what a pet nat is. So, Drea, maybe we should start there. Sure. Let's start here. So, um, yeah, I do think that this wine may be the thing that perfectly describes our personal love affair with each other and with wine. And what you're going to find in this bottle is a funky, unfiltered, sparkling wine that's made in an ancestral style. And where that starts is how we understand what a pet nat is. So funky. So funky. Um, so pet nat is actually an abbreviation, and I'm going to fuck this up because good. My I never try to say it, so say it for this reason. Bad. Uh, a uh, petulant natural, which is a French term um, that roughly translates to naturally sparkling wine, just and like so, our personalities, naturally sparkling, <laughs> naturally sparkling. <laughs> How are you? I'm naturally sparkling. How are you? Uh, and so let's let's talk about what this means. And to do that, I think we need to talk a little bit about a classic sparkling wine like champagne. So most sparkling wines are made by the champagne method. And I also love a champagne. Yes, do not know I what do. the champagne method is. <laughs> so <laughs> a champagne is a region from France where champagne comes from and that's why it's called champagne it has to do with where those grapes are grown and processed and transformed into wine but the process that's used to make champagne is the same process that we see in most other large market sparkling wines so something like a california sparkling a cava a prosecco they're all using the champagne method when you make traditional champagne, you combine one or more still dry wines. Okay, so these are basically finished wines that have already undergone some fermentation with a small amounts of yeast and sugar. And then this combination is bottled and aged. The yeast eats the sugar in the liquor, and then there's that's the second in-bottle fermentation that produces this trapped carbon dioxide and gives sparkling wines their bubbles and their carbonation. So there's two fermentations that happen, okay? There's tank and then there's bottle aging or bottled fermentation. So they split the fermentation process into two these two stages. So in other words, there's like sort of the regular normal process that all wines go through in in a tank or a barrel or whatever they're doing and then there is this like special bottle make it bubble uh process with the yeast and the sugar yes and we're gonna get much more into this when we do our next episode which is going to feature a classic cava from um, the San Leonoya region in spain but what you need to know for the purpose of understanding where the pet nat is is that classic Sparkling wines made with the champagne method undergo a double-stage fermentation process in the tank and in the bottle. A pet nat, however, is a little bit different. So what happens is pet nat is bottled while the wine is still undergoing its first round of fermentation. So this is what the French call the method ancestral or ancestral method. And it has likely been around for far, far longer than the champagne method or any other complex method for producing sparkling wines. So a pet nat is really undergoing a single fermentation process primarily in the bottle. And what that does is it creates a more experimental form of wine. And what I mean by that is 
wine, contemporary winemakers are using different types of grapes. So not necessarily, you know, grapes that are being used for champagne or the Three Noble grapes that are being used for cava. They're just getting crazy with stuff. They're doing all sorts of interesting blends, picking out new grapes, and it just doesn't operate under the same rules. So one of the reasons that champagne, cava, prosecco, especially from some of, you know, the more well-known houses that have that regional certification behind them is that those bottles are very consistent. Like, obviously, you're going to have variations between years and vintages. But for the most part, if you buy a Dom Perignon, you know what you're getting, right? Because it's a very closely controlled process. The pet nap process is just like, go nuts, go wild. There are yeast and sugars getting all happy and mingling. And you can't really control what's happening. So whatever is going down in that bottle is going down in that bottle. Every year will be different. You could have bottles that are different within the same year and with grapes that are coming from the same vineyard. So it's a little bit like a wild, wild west process that goes into making a pet nap. But for me, that means that it's a variety that's always super exciting. And so I get excited by pet gnats. This particular one from Vici, I believe that their first vintage of the pet mix was in either 2015 or 2016. And every single one has been different. So the first time I tasted the Pet Max, I actually did not enjoy it. I thought it was too sweet. There was too much residual sugar. The flavor profiles weren't developed enough. It was not my favorite glass. This 2019 that we just opened, though, I'm already in love with it. So it's, it's interesting to see that variation year to year, bottle to bottle. Yeah, and that's something that I kind of wanted to ask you about as well, is I feel like I... I don't remember ever hearing about pet gnats until like a couple of years ago. So when did these start becoming more of a thing? Are they a thing? They are totally a thing. They have become very, very popular, spurred mainly by the natural wine movement. So as natural natty wines, which we have talked about on the podcast before, have become more and more popular, you're seeing more places wade into the, the pet gnat waters. The other thing about a pet gnat is because it's such an experimental methodology and m a much less controlled process, smaller wineries um, and smaller winemakers can produce them with a fair amount of ease. So they have definitely risen in popularity over the last, I would say, five years. The other thing about a pet gnat is, you know, in terms of price point, they're a lot more approachable than a classic champagne or even a California sparkling in many cases. They tend to be a good bang for your buck. They are fun. So they're great conversation starters. And they are young wines. They are meant to be drunk, you know, pretty quickly after they are bottled and the fermentation process is done. So like when these wines go to market, you can open them tomorrow. It's not like you're going to have some age on them like you would a uh, certain champagne vintages or even if you're into like aged cavas, for example, like I am. The pet gnats don't need that. And frankly, they don't want that. They want to go in the fridge in your mouth. It sounds like they are very much like we've been talking this whole episode about like being present and in the moment and they are a wine that reflects like this is a particular moment. Absolutely. And they really capture that with the winemaking process, right? Everything that's happening in that vineyard that is the ecosystem and in that processing timeline is captured in a bottle of Petna. And so that's why you have the variation. And yeah, I think they're, I think they're rad. So tell me a little bit more about this specific Petnat, the Petmex. I had not thought of, I mean, I have been to Valle with you and I've been to Valle on my own a little bit, not for wine, but for just living in Southern California. But I didn't think of Mexico as being a like wine producing country. And I am really curious to learn more about, uh, about Beachy. Yeah, so I had to, um, 
really like gird my wine loins when it came to researching this episode because for me Mexico Valle de Guadalupe is probably the most exciting wine region in the world right now. Wow. There is no domain of origin certification down there yet. And so what that means is as we've discussed a couple times is there's no regulation really. And so because of that they are doing crazy stuff. Like crazy stuff. I mean, this is a region where you can go up one dirt road and find like insane super Tuscans. I'm not a fan, but if that's your jam, there are some amazing ones. You can go down the next dirt road and find a 100% Palomino, which very few winemakers in the world are making right now. You can go further down the road and find a skin contact Sauvignon Blanc, being poured next to a Tempranillo. I mean, stuff is insane down there and I am living for it. It is such an exciting region in terms of the winemakers that are there and the stuff that they're doing. And most of them are very small producers. There's not a ton of distribution outside Mexico. And so it's such a treat from my house. It's like an hour and a half door to door from my front door to my first winery stop. There's also a lot of biodynamic and organic farming that's going on down there and a lot of dry farming. So the the winemakers are really committed to thinking about vineyards as an ecosystem and really using the landscape to accomplish that. So this particular bottle is actually coming from just north of the Valle de Guadalupe in Tecate. And it is called the Petmex. We'll talk about its name and the brand in a few minutes here. It has an ABV of 12%. So, you know, it's, it's, it's definitely an easy sipper. I actually really love this as a Sunday brunch wine. And we'll talk about that too when we get to our pairings. Mexican wines, though, are not as cheap as one would think. And I think that that is a huge issue, especially in the U.S., you know, a lot of times people here don't expect Mexican cuisine, Mexican products to be a certain price. In other words, they expect everything to be cheap because like it's Mexico and the dollar is so strong historically. But and also like, let's be real racism. Yeah, let's be real racism. Also, I'm Mexican. So there we all go. But, um, you know, I, I think that there's just like this horrible misnomer that Mexican culture is all like 99 cents burritos. And well, I do love a Tecate beer. Like that's the end all be all. And it's it's not. There is such elevated cuisine and winemaking and craft liquor making down there. It's just some incredible stuff. So Vichy is one of those bodegas that's really figured it out. So they are readily available in a lot of places. Um, you will probably find them either at, again, a natural wine shop that specializes in natty wines or a higher end Mexican restaurants. And so retail, this bottle here is about $35. So it's probably one of the pricier bottles I think that we've covered on the show, but it's worth it. It's delicious. And it's definitely a great conversation piece and something that you want to share in the company of others. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think it is really important to acknowledge that countries and places that we, and I'm now speaking as a white American, that we like assume to be one way are actually much more interesting and much more complicated than sort of broad white American culture gives them credit for. And let's talk a little bit about the history. I'm operating on the assumption that most of our listeners know that the Spanish conquistadors came to the New World and were in, you know, what is now modern day Mexico. And, and California, so like we talked about in one of our right. earlier episodes. Absolutely. So, um, and, you know, in this whole like region that in the US we broaden know as the Southwest, down into Mexico, Central America, and of course, South America. But grapevines for wine were actually planted in Mexico um, in the late 1500s. So that's predating vine growth in both Chile and Argentina, which are now major wine producers in the quote unquote new world, right? I hate that phrase, but the industry calls it like new world wine. So um, forgive me. But 
So Mexican, Mexico is no stranger to growing vines. And the reality is, is because the region itself is so well suited for that type of agriculture. And actually, during the early days of conquest, the Spanish crown was importing wines that were produced in pre-Mexico, Mexico, back to Spain for consumption. It was like a very big deal to be able to drink a new world grown wine at that time. As you know, more and more Spaniards came and then you had the Jesuit missionaries come in, um, they continued to plant grapevines, primarily the varietal Mason, which you see a lot in Baja and Alta California. So Mexico and up into the Southern California region. Today, about 90% of Mexico's wine is produced in the Valle de Guadalupe. And there are over a hundred bodegas operating there at this point. So we are drinking a wine from the 10% that is actually not produced in Valle. Uh, it is produced in Tecate, which is just very south of California. And it's actually the way that I like to go down to Valle and back from. So they're based in Tecate. And these guys are gnarly and I love them. So I first learned about Vichy. Um, I did a tasting at my local wine bar in San Diego, the Rose in South Park. If you're ever there, give them some love, tell them Drea sent you. And they came over and they did a tasting and my brain was just on fire. I could not figure out for the life of me some of these wines, but in the best possible way. And so I was actually talking to um, the head winemaker, Noel Telez. It's owned by the Telez family. Um, they're a family that's very committed to the region and very committed to the culinary culture of the region. I, so Noel was doing the tasting and he's, you know, he's also the lead winemaker. And I drank this one particular wine that was in the lineup. It's called the Mystico. And I, I just couldn't figure it out. I couldn't figure out the varietal. I couldn't figure out, you know, the blend. I, I, I was completely mystified, hence the name. And I asked him, what is this? Like, I've never tasted anything like this. Like, it has to be a blend, but I can't figure it out. And he just laughed. And he told me that there were these grapes that grew on their property that had been there for a really long time, been there when they bought it, and they didn't really know what they were, but they decided to make wine out of it, and it was good. So they bottled it and sold it, and I was just like, I'm in love forever. Like, that's the type of crazy shit that's going on down there, and it's, to me, it is so exciting. Yeah, that's the level of no rules we're talking about here. What is this? Don't know. Tastes good. Let's sell it. Let's do this. Let's do this. So, yeah, it's it's a rad wild ride, but... So the Telez family actually moved to Baja from neighboring Sonora area, hence the name Vichy. So Vichy means naked in Sonoran Yaqui dialect. And so again, we see that really close connection to the land and to the practices of farming that they have. And I have a ton of spec for Noel Telez. He actually left his job as a lawyer. He was a practicing lawyer in Tijuana. And now he's the sole proprietor of Beachy and oversees the day-to-day -day operations uh, at the winery. I've been so fortunate to taste with him a couple times, most recently during the pandemic shutdown when, you know, no one could really travel across the border. He hosted a four-hour tasting class on Zoom, and it was just phenomenal. So if you ever get a chance, they don't have a tasting room at their property, but they pour all of their wines at Laja, the restaurant. Uh, they also make quite a few trips to the U.S. Um, and do tastings at, at wine shops around. So, you know, follow them on Instagram, look for them, and hopefully you'll have a chance to, to meet him because he's a special, special person in the wine industry. I found a great interview with Noel where he was asked, do you think that one day Mexican wines will be as well known as French, Italian, or California wines? And I just thought his, his response was so fresh and such a good reflection of what they do there. And he said, normally, I don't like to compare Italian, French, California wines. 
They're different places and each one has its own greatness. We're more focused on how we can transfer. Well, transfer is not the word, but how we can put what's in the soil, the terroir, into a glass of wine. You could say that really separates us from the other wineries here. So they're really committed to capturing the essence of this place in their glasses. And I think that that's that level of commitment in winemaking is so important. And it really comes through when you're drinking the wine on the other side of things. Uh, they're also a biodynamic and organic producer. So those are the farming practices that they really adhere to and just to kind of refresh everyone's mind, you know, organic farming practices are regulated. But when we think about biodynamic, it's really the philosophy of seeing a vineyard as an entire ecosystem. They also have created these large vats. They're made of concrete and they call them tnachas. And those are the vessels that they use for aging and fermenting the wines. And what does tinajas mean? Girl, I have no idea. I'm a bad Mexican. We can ask Google Translate. Should we do this in real time? Tinajas, or small jars in Spanish, are surface waters found on naturally occurring bedrock catchments. I don't know what these things are. They are fed by springs and or precipitations. Okay. Okay, so okay. they're like, they're like, um... If you go to the beach and you see a tide pool, it's like a yeah, tide they're like pool, surface but... pockets. Yeah. yeah. Okay. okay. All right. Yeah, I can post a picture of a tanahas on our Instagram. Great. All about the learning. Where were we? So they they do biodynamic and organic farming. They have got it. Concrete tanahas. What's uh, next in the process? Their fermentations are carried out by wild yeast. I think we've talked about this a little bit, but there are specialized yeasts that are made for winemaking that are available on the market. And a lot of conventional wineries do this, where they use those types of yeast. Then there are either what we call natural yeast or wild yeast, or as one of my favorite winemakers says, feral yeast. And those are the naturally occurring yeast um, that are in you know, the fruit and that uh, mingle with the sugars. So they operate on a wild yeast system here. And then the wines are raised in a mix of natural barrels and steel vats. They do minimal intervention. So that also means very minimal sugar as well. I mean, excuse me, very minimal sulfur as well. And when sulfur is added, at the bottling, it's usually added to preserve the wine for travel if needed. When you have that minimal intervention, though, and they're putting the least amount of sulfur in the wine possible, again, that's why these wines are meant to be drunk pretty young. They're not going to have the shelf life that you're going to get with like a conventionally produced Bordeaux or Cabernet or something like that. Beautiful. So this okay. wine specifically, what are we... What's the deal with the Petmex? So the Petmex is an interesting gal, which is why I love her. So she comes from a single dry farmed 69 year old vineyard. And she comes from the same vineyard that that mystery grape variety comes from. So she's just, she's a mysterious lady and I love her. The vines, you know, Tecate, even though it's inland, is pretty close to the Pacific Ocean. Um, you're still getting that sea breeze, in other words, and the elevation is also a little bit over a thousand feet above sea level. So you've got a lot of sand in the soil, you've got a lot of granite in the soil, and all of that comes out through sort of the minerality that we taste in the wines. All the grapes are hand harvested, hand disseminated, and then pressed for a few hours on the skins. So that's why we get this beautiful, almost salmon pink color here. That rosé color that you're looking at, again, is really coming from that skin contact with the grapes. So this one is also fermented using wild yeast and is bottled before the fermentation process is finished per Petnat style. And so the fermentation then ends in the bottle. And it is unfiltered. So it does have sediment in it because it's unfiltered. You're going to see residual 
sugar crystals. You're going to see residual like fruit specks. It's like that must that would normally get taken out of a traditional champagne method sparkling wine. All of that stuff stays in a pet nap because that fermentation is happening in the bottle. My recommendation is when you do decide to put a chill on this bottle, make sure it's standing upright in your fridge because then all the sediment is going to settle on the bottom of the bottle and make your pouring experience a lot better. But still, you know, it's for being a pet nap, this particular one is pretty crisp. It doesn't have a ton of cloudiness to it. I drink a lot of unfiltered wines and some of them, when you pour them out, aren't the most appetizing looking. Um, but this one does look pretty crisp. Yeah, that's what's in this guy. And you know, <laughs> I love to look at the little bubbles. They're, they're very tiny. This is not like bubbly the way that like, again, a cava or a champagne right. would be, but it's got these very little bubbles and they're just little delights. Yeah, this is not going to, you know, if you think about serving up a sparkling you may be more familiar with, like in a flute, right? So champagne, cava, uh, prosecco tends to be ultra carbonated and you've got that bubble stream that comes up. You're not going to get that with a pet nap for the most part. The bubbles tend to be a lot softer and read more like a light carbonation on the tongue. So you get a really nice effervescence and just that touch of sparkling, but it's not as aggressive. I would also recommend not serving this in a flute. You want to serve it in a larger wine glass so that it really has some ability to open up and all those nice aromatics are released. So is what you're saying that I should go pour this from a flute into a larger cup? Oh my God. Okay. Wrong. <laughs> Again, one of us is the expert in the podcast and one of us is the expert in the wines. BRB, let I, me go fix this live. I love this. I love this so much. Oh, okay, we're back. I've got a regular little bodega in here now. <laughs> I just heard Scott, how'd it go? Still happening. <laughs> then he was like, still drinking wine in the closet, huh? <laughs> okay, so now I've poured it into a larger, regular glass. It's lovely. <laughs> Is it good? Is it good? I mean, it was good when it was in a flute, too killing me killing me although i do kind of want to talk about this so what made you uh decide to put it in the flute so i put it in a flute because i knew there would be a little bit of bubbles i think i had in my head that like larger glasses are for red flutes or smaller glasses are for whites um or champ like i know that it's a champagne flute but like whatever um and then i think like honestly if i'm being really honest with you it's because i was like all of these other wines we've had have been in the big glass. So, like, at some point, it's like when you're flipping heads or tails. It's like, okay, this one's got to be. Like, we've had too many heads here. We've had too many big glass wines. It's time for a flute. So, um, I actually, as, as Anne knows, and as many of you will find out next episode, I drink a lot of cava, which is the sparkling wine coming out of Spain. And I actually prefer a bigger glass for my cava. Um, so I either do just like, you know, an everyday glass that can go, that swings all ways, can go red or white, or I'll do a coupe. But I like something that has a bigger opening that's one, going to let some of that excess carbon dioxide and gas out of the wine so that you're not just getting like a full face of bubbles when that's you drink. That's what I want. Oh, okay. Fine. Fine. Anyway, right, so I well, guess what, what I hear you saying is that, as with so many things on this podcast, wine is more complicated than red does this, white does that, blah, blah, blah. Also, like, do what you want. You like the flute and the full bubble on the nose? Go for it. My preference is to let it open up a little bit, let some of the gas es escape. So I use, like, a regular tasting glass. But, again, those are two like very specific preferences based on our taste and what we like. Uh, so, you know, 
go for it. Like, go nuts. All right. So is there anything more to say about the body of this wine? So I'm going to ask you that question. What do you, now, that, now that you've poured... Wait, is it in the plastic cup? No, I wish oh. it was in the plastic cup. <laughs> I'm sitting here with a flute, my plastic cup of water, my, like, larger wine glass, and just going to town. So I do feel like it opened it up a little bit more. I'm getting more of the flavors... <laughs> It, it really does. Like when, when it was in the flute, I did see the, the bubbles were doing their little like bubble lines. And now it's like, I'm a more chill. I'm chill. I'm not trying to escape. So that effervescence is being released. How would you compare this to like a normal sparkling? Well, normal's a bad term, but a more traditionally produced sparkling or even rosé that you've had So this before. is like, there is a sparkle to it, but this is not like a sparkling wine. Yeah, I mean, this, this I think to me, and maybe it's the color, is much more like, I'm getting much more of like an, oh, this is almost an orange wine in, in sort of the lightness, the flavor. It's just gorgeous. I mean, it's really nice. I was getting, in my first sip, and now we're jumping into tasting, which is maybe not right, but... In Go my first it. sip, I was getting like the the real funkiness of the wine, almost sour, like pickly beauty, which I I love. I love that so much. I do, I'm not into that weird hippie drink, but that's what it reminds me of. Kombucha. Yeah, I'm not into kombucha, <laughs> but it did give me a little bit of that like, mm, and it was delightful. That, but now I process, feel that yeah. now that it's been open a little longer and now that it's in maybe now that it's in a larger glass, I'm just getting like a really pleasant wine experience. You know, what I like about this particular pet nat is and a lot of pet nats for that matter is that they tend to have a little bit more body and structure to them, a little bit more meat on the bones, so to speak, where there are some interesting things happening with the texture of the wine. Mm -hmm. So the feel in your mouth is a little heavier than a normal sparkling. God damn it. I keep using that word. A traditional sparkling. A or classic. A classic or a classic rosé. So, you know, it is a bit more weighty, I think, on the mouth. In terms of the nose, too, I get sea salt and fresh cut grass and herbs, maybe some lemongrass, like just some really nice, very earthy overtones. But to me, on the palate, the taste is completely different than yeah. the nose. And so what do you what are you tasting in your mouth? It's very fruity, very sweet. Mm -hmm. I don't know that I could tell you what fruit it is. Maybe I'm back in that like peach zone. But it's definitely like there are wines that sort of like bite back. And this is not a wine to me that that is like, uh, let me grab your tongue and hold on to it. It's like we're on a pleasant, like pleasant little vacation together here in my closet. And everything you just said is one of the reasons why I am most surprised at how much I like this wine, because it is definitely very fruit forward. It, I'm getting peach and like early peach apricots papaya yeah you know there's some very like bold fruit almost flavors mango here. even yeah there's and there is you know quite a bit of residual sugar in this bottle so it does read a little bit sweeter so let's talk a little bit about pairings um yeah. with this guy so okay food I have already declared my love of this Pepmex as a brunch wine, mm -hmm. and I would go sweet or savory. You know, if you've got a sweet tooth and you love a sweet breakfast, like this would be amazing with French toast. I love a French toast. It is one of the COVID lockdown skills that I really mastered. So this would pair well with that. But I would also do it with a savory breakfast with like biscuits and gravy. Ooh. Yeah, I also, I mean, I would, I think a waffle would be great with this. Like, I have, uh, a, I, I yes. love a waffle and, like, fresh strawberries and maybe even some blueberries and, like, some whipped cream on top. This wine would be heaven. Um, but, yeah, I could also see, like, you mentioned a couple of episodes ago that you were making a breakfast pizza, and I could see that being really delicious here. I could also see this pairing really nicely with some fresh spring vegetables like 
like asparagus and hollandaise sauce, I feel like would be really good with this. Ooh, that would be nice because you would get that that grassiness from the asparagus, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but then you would have like that nice sweet cushion. Yep. Mm -hmm. I would also serve this honestly with like a cheese course for dessert. Like I yeah. think if you put down like a tangy goat, like a yummy blue, this could go really, really well with that. So besides brunch, what kind of situation would you put this wine in? I believe this episode is going to be released on Mother's Day. And I think this is a great Mother's Day wine. I totally agree with that. A mom I, will like this wine. Yeah, a mom will love this wine. So if you need a gift for your mom and she likes the vino, this is an excellent excellent bottle to gift out and now you can tell her all about the wine and she will be so impressed with the child she raised my mom personally loves this wine i'm so proud of her she loves a pet nat i hope you bought an extra the last time she was visiting she was eyeballing it so yeah this is a great mother's day wine this and a bouquet of flowers and you were going to be the best child ever <laughs> in a more selfish bent I would love to sit by a pool with this wine. I just would really, I think it would be really fresh. It would be really delightful. And just, you know, if you're not seeing your mother and you just need an afternoon of uh, self-care, this is a great wine to go along with that. Yep. Do a face mask, do a yeah. foot peel, all that good stuff. What are you reading with this wine? <laughs> what am I reading with this wine? I have an answer and it's not okay. Jane Austen. Oh, really? Shocking. You gave me this collection of short stories last year called And Other Sons, and it is all oh, sort of yeah. sci-fi and fantasy and all written by BIPOC authors, um, so exploring different ideas within, within the genre. And I feel like this is a funky enough wine, and that is like a fun and funky enough book that I think they would go really nicely together. I like that. I like that. I was trying, I want to come up with something that also, you know, echoes some of the sentiments here. I kind of want to read this wine, read this wine. I want to drink this wine while reading either um, like a biography about Frida Kahlo or um, I read a book. I We read the book over last summer mexican gothic i was thinking of that too yeah which is just such a it's such a fun take on a classic gothic tale and it's different and it's it's got a wild twist in the middle of it and i feel like this wine would complement that so well because it's so unexpected in so many ways and they both this is not a spoiler this is a hint they both have a certain earthiness to them that Ugh. i think is enjoyable <laughs> i was going to say and the they're both bubbly and fruity just like the narrator <laughs> you went dark i went girl she always goes dark so yeah, I would read I would read Mexican Gothic and drink this wine. Nice. Okay, what are you listening to? Mm, that's a tough one. I never I feel as answer. ready with the music one. You go ahead, you start. I I feel like maybe I said this an episode or two ago, but I legit do not care and I stand by this. I want to listen to Harry Styles and drink this wine. Nice. Or I want to listen to Selena. <laughs> Selena would be a great choice with this. I've gotten into a little bit of uh, guilty pleasure Justin Bieber, and well, I'm not saying he's not my celebrity. <laughs> I would not drink this wine with him. But you might put him on in the background. But yeah. I might put him on in the background. You know what, though? I should just shut the fuck up, because last night, Saturday Night Live, Nick Jonas was on, and I was like, that sounds real good. And then I was like, what the fuck are you doing? Go oh, I would, I would listen to this with the, any of the Jonas Brothers in the background. I see. Who who are we drinking this wine with? What celebrity is invited to this party? Well, you just mentioned SNL, and I feel like Kate McKinnon would enjoy this wine, um, and I would enjoy this wine with Kate McKinnon. I just feel like she's got a fun personality, but she's also a little bit weird at times. <laughs> so I feel like that's this wine. 
you never, you never quite know what you're going to get, vintage yeah. to vintage, but you know it's going to be interesting. Yeah. I think that Lady Gaga and Brandon Maxwell have like this amazing intuitive relationship, uh, united by fashion, because he does a lot of design for her. And I also think she is amazing and also a little weird. And I think he is fucking hilarious. So I would love to take this to a pool party with Lady Gaga and Brandon Maxwell. Yes, I completely agree. And then we're going to watch the Halston thing on Netflix and it's going to be great. Love it. Love it. So yeah, that's I, I think we've we've done well for ourselves. with this. All right. So looking ahead two weeks, what are we drinking next time? So next time, we're taking it from Funky the Classic, and we will be drinking my everyday cava, as I fondly refer to it. We will be drinking a Freshenette Cordon Negro. It's a traditional cava from the largest producer in Spain. And we picked it because it is a really nice contrast to this bottle, but it's also cheap and cheerful and available anywhere with a wine aisle. So... This is a good bottle that's under 10 bucks. I highly encourage uh, you stocking up on it because it's just an easy sipper and we can't wait to talk about it. So until next time, make sure that you are following us on Instagram at two girls and a grape pod. Drea is keeping it classy and updated. I am still failing at Twitter, but I did post one thing this last week. So if you haven't seen it, Get on the Twitters, look it up, at two girls and a grape with the number two. And maybe email us. Let us know what you'd like to see or hear next. We are looking for suggestions for our wine wheel of adventure uh, and can't wait to hear what you have have to offer. Um, and again, if you are enjoying this, if you're having a good time with us, please rate review subscribe all of that helps Follow. us out and um, you know what like full disclosure our bar is really low for success we literally are here for shits and giggles mostly your shits and giggles uh and we'd love every bottle of wine upon occasion so you know we're we're here for a good time <laughs> and if you are too follow us like follow rate us. and review uh, and we've got some cool stuff coming up. We got some great bottles I sourced on this last trip. We will be doing another tasting takeover in May. Uh, so that's exciting too. So look for that. And yeah. Until next time. Salud. Salud. <laughs>